This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and I'm your host and joining me today as ever is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Duncan, do you feel paranoid today? <laughs> I do now, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, are I... you you know, are you doubting what you see and what you hear? Absolutely, always, you know, yeah, <laughs> especially at this I time mean, of year. You had like a loft refurbishment done recently. Is there anything in that loft? Did you do that for a reason? Are you hiding uh, something in your loft? That, that, that's true. Yeah, you know, who, who knows what was up in the loft? I mean, we weren't we weren't there when they when they were converting it. You know, there could have been anything up there. <laughs> Funnily enough, when we were doing the research for this episode, I was uh, staying at my mum's house down in the country, which is much more like the kind of that sort of creepy. Uh, not that my mum has a particularly gothic house, but um, you know, she does <laughs> live in a house kind of in the middle of nowhere, in a sort of rather misty kind of neighborhood and actually weirdly the house that she lived in it, it used to be owned by the water board and it has this well in one corner of the house so there's a kind of section of the house that you can't go into uh because only the water board have access to it because they still use it as a kind of backup well now and then and sometimes in the night it makes these kind of weird gurgling noises so i was definitely getting into the mood for this kind of you know gothic kind of storytelling yeah so in case you hadn't realized already we're going to be talking about yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking about my mum's house uh, and how that influenced her. <laughs> no, not really. And the creepy well. No, yeah. we're going to be talking about gothic fiction in Star Trek, particularly the hollow novels mm. of Janeway. Well, the the one hollow novel of Janeway. And we see it three three times, don't we? We see it in three different episodes and then it's kind of unfortunately dropped. And we'll be talking about why it's dropped and, you know, why we think it wasn't a success. Well, you say unfortunately. I think a lot of people w- were quite relieved that it was dropped because um, I think Jerry Taylor was quite disappointed, wasn't she? She was quite keen on it. It was kind of her idea from the beginning. Uh, but they started getting feedback as soon as they started putting this hollow novel in the episodes from fans kind of saying that we don't really like this. And I have to say, I was never a huge fan of these. Not so much the episodes. I think the episodes are pretty good in their own right. But of those hollow, nev- hollow novel uh, moments in the episodes. But it's interesting going back and watching them all three together and also watching them in context with the kind of some of the literary inspirations behind them. I actually appreciated them a little bit more, if anything. And in some ways, I felt that they 
that those episodes uh, I appreciated more as well. Something about the kind of creepy quality of them. I think having been primed by kind of, um, you know, submerging myself in this kind of gothic literature actually uh, added something uh, in a strange way to watching those episodes. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I also found them unintentionally comical. I mean, I'm not sure I'm supposed to. (laughs) I think part of it is that we come from the UK. And I think to an American audience, this kind of storyline would look very different. I think because we come from like the country where these novels are set. And also, you know, we have a lot of Victorian uh, heritage in in the UK, in England, and, you know, in London even. And so, uh, so some of it seems a little bit like what you would imagine a stereotype of a sort of gothic British landowner and his creepy posh little children. But I thought it was pretty, it was pretty, it was okay done. You know, I mean, like the, we'll go on to talk about this, but the production values are very good. I, it's not as exciting as perhaps maybe some other hollow novels in the, in the series. No, it's probably, it's, it's, it's not the high point of, of, of Voyager's hollow novels, certainly. But I mean, yeah, it's a bit ropey. It's got the feeling of a slightly kind of creaky TV movie about it. But at the same time, you know, if, if you think Sub Rosa, on the one hand, Fairhaven at the other, you know, actually, if this is Star Trek's version of the kind of, of Victorian England, we could have got off a lot worse, I think, to be honest. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not all that bad. It's partly the way, and, and I have a slight issue with this on a kind of logical uh, level, but the way that Mulgrew kind of throws herself into it, she really performs that part somehow of the of the governess character in a way that is slightly confusing for me because it doesn't feel in any way like Janeway playing that part it just feels like Kate Mulgrew is like right okay I'm playing you know I'm playing Jane Eyre I'm playing Janeway Eyre basically this week but at the same time I think that kind of helps like she sort of sells it because her performance as much as it is quite kind of mannered and old-fashioned it is quite committed if you know what I mean she kind of grounds it I think that the housekeeper uh, I can't remember what her name is the kind of scary evil house keeper is pretty good as well um and the um the guy the the master i was really struck this time by how much he looks like colin firth it's like they kind of went okay we're doing period drama we need like mr period drama and they found this guy who kind of looks a bit like a sort of poor man's colin firth basically to play this sort of brooding hero you know all in all i feel like the it could have been a lot worse at the same time that's not to say that it necessarily was a great success, this kind of running, uh, I was going to say running joke, this running, you know, motif, this kind of feature of this hollow novel going through Voyager's uh, sort of late first season and early into the second season, I think. Well, so we should probably explain a little bit about like how this hollow novel was devised. So it's called Janeway Lambda One. And uh, it's obviously a way for Captain Janeway, Captain Catherine Janeway, who's the captain of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, it's a way of her... Like sort of de-stressing, having some fun, kind of getting away from, you know, the pressures of, of her, her job. And it's supposed to be relaxing, or at least that's what the doctor prescribes it as. Although when I was watching this with my husband, my husband was like, this is relaxing. This seems totally not relaxing. But it's, it's supposed to be, I mean, the way that they talk about, the writers talk about how they devised the idea was it was supposed to be not supposed to challenge her intellect. It was supposed to challenge her imagination. So it doesn't challenge her intelligence or her expertise, but it was supposed to sort of challenge her imagination and her emotions. And it wasn't originally supposed to be Victorian. It was supposed to be a sort of Western like pioneer story. And it was devised by Cher- Jerry Taylor. And the thing is that Kate Mulgrew really didn't want to work with horses. And I think it's because she had some sort of accident in her youth with a horse, like, while she was working with horses on television at some point. 
or in a, or in a film. I think she, she broke a bone anyway, falling off a horse or something like that. And she really didn't want to work with horses. And also it was going to probably prove to be really, really expensive to do a Western, you know, storyline with all the outdoor filming with the horses and the handlers and the kind of sort of technology and filming equipment that was needed and all that sort of stuff. So they had to it was going to be a hundred. They said it was going to cost them a hundred thousand dollars per episode uh, to include that, like five minutes. It is a shame, though. I think because I have to say that would have made perfect sense. I mean, Star Trek has always had this kind of wagon train element, you know, wagon trains to the stars. Voyager, in particular, the Delta Quadrant is this kind of, you know, it, it really is kind of selling that sort of final frontier idea. You know, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Janeway is a kind of pioneer in that sense. The whole crew are. To me, that would have made a lot more sense as a fantasy for Janeway. It's quite kind of bold. It's quite kind of brave. She'd have a lot of agency in that story. Whereas I think part of the problem with her having this kind of gothic, uh, sort of Victorian gothic literature fantasy is the fact that you take this character who is in real life, she's the captain, she's in charge, she's very bold and brave and so on. And then she's playing this woman who... I mean, in some ways, the the characters in these novels, they're always partly passive. And, you know, she's being looked down on. There's that scene, the really kind of excruciating scene in um, Persistence of Vision, I think. Uh, oh, no, it's not. It's in Learning Curve. It's in the second of these three episodes where the children are kind of putting her in her place and saying, you will address us as my lord and my lady. And, and Janeway's like, yes, yes, of course, my lord. Yes, of course, my lady. And you kind of think, come on, this is not our bold, brave captain. You know, why is she putting up with this? And she does kind of stand up for herself a bit. She stands up for herself as a scientist because they pull her up on her rusty Latin and so on. But at the same time, I feel like the way these stories are written, they don't really emphasise Janeway as a kind of strong, bold character. I mean, even compared to, say, Captain Picard as Dixon Hill, where he kind of gets to act out. He gets to act out of character, but at the same time, he gets to be a bit of a hero. He gets a bit of action. You know, it sort of adds something to his character. There's something about putting Janeway in this box. It feels slightly limiting, slightly kind of constraining. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, actually, but I'll, I'll get, I'll get onto that in a minute. But like, because of this Western storyline was going to cost so much money, they did actually end up deciding to do, well, Jerry Taylor ended up deciding to do this storyline and they built a whole set, a uh, Victorian sort of drawing room set and on, on, on site. And they re- repeatedly used it, as we know. And it was called the Jane Eyre set. So obviously deliberately uh, sort of linking it to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. So in terms of the storylines, it sort of was linked to the Gothic storylines. It's one of them is Turn of the Screw by Henry James from 1898. Jane Eyre uh, by Charlotte Bronte from 1847. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier uh, from 1938. And I also thought a lot of it was quite Wilkie Collins-like, you know, the sort of Victorian author Wilkie Collins, because he has a lot of heroines who are, you know, sort of in peril and fall in love with... I would say quite overbearing men, that kind of thing. It's very, very, his novels are very gothic. Right. I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, to me, it sort of feels, I, I think the Jane Eyre parallel is the most obvious one. I mean, partly because you've got this, you, you, you know, you've got the kind of wife. Is she dead? Isn't she? Well, clearly she isn't dead. You know, that's pretty obviously where the story is going. Uh, or, or if she is dead, then she's a ghost, I suppose, is the other option. But, um, you, you know, this, this wife that sort of won't disappear in a sense, got the kind of love interest between Janeway and the, and the master as well. But I think definitely you've got the turn of the screw. The turn of the screw, for anyone who's not familiar with it, is a Henry James, I guess it's kind of a novella. It's, it's a pretty short, um, work. 
very creepy, very interesting, quite sort of psychological uh, ghost story. We can come on to talk a little bit about some of the issues that sort of circle around that story and how they might inform uh, the Star Trek episodes here as well. But the key thing in that story is that the, it centres around the governess to these two children. And there's this real question about these children who seem very kind of sweet and angelic, but are they really kind of evil? Are they corrupted? And that's the real question is there are these kind of seem to be these evil forces that are trying to corrupt these children and the kind of horror of these uh, beautiful, angelic innocents being turned into something very different. At one point, um, the narrator describes the girl who's this, you, you know, girl of, I don't know, six or seven or something, is suddenly she seemed much, much older. She seemed like an old woman. And there's this kind of sense of, you know, the, the, there's something wrong about all that. And definitely, I think the, the fact that the children in the uh, Voyager Hollow novel have something a bit creepy, have something a bit sinister about them kind of plays on that. I'm not so... To be honest, I'm not so familiar with Rebecca. I mean, I've seen the film. I've never actually read the novel. I don't know whether... I, I know there's a, a nasty housekeeper in that i don't know whether that's the sense in which uh, well it's it's that's, it's that's the story yeah that, it's and, and an ex-wife you know a previous wife but um, no yeah that's the that's the point is that there's this wife in uh, rebecca who is dead but her sort of influence lies over almost everything in the entire house including the household staff and mrs templeton who is the housekeeper in Janeway Lambda One is very similar to the housekeeper in Rebecca. She sort of Mrs. Like, Danvers. Yeah. yeah. And and there's also a portrait on the wall of the wife in Rebecca, and there's a portrait obviously of the wife and the wall of the, you know, Janeway's hollow novel. So there there's definitely links to it. There are links there. But but Rebecca is not a Victorian I mean, obviously not written in that era, but it's also not it's set in contemporary times, right? Is that right? Or is it not? No, it's no, it's set in nineteen, like in the nineteen thirties. The point is that when they were writing this, they were actually thinking of all three of these stories. So they are, but yeah, the writers, like the writers, are quoted, and the director and the production staff are quoted as having said that they were thinking of all three of these stories. Obviously, Jane Way, you know, Jane Eyre, sorry, is the biggest influence, but that there's elements of all three of these because, in truth, Daphne du Maurier was actually influenced by Jane Eyre. And, you know, Turn of the Screw, like Henry James, was actually influenced by Jane Eyre. So these other writers were influenced by... Everyone's influenced by Jane Eyre. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing, like, this sort of repeated kind of theme and storyline again and again and again. And that obviously is influencing the Star Trek creators. But the interesting thing about this is that there's a huge amount of detail in this set. A lot of uh, very sort of accurately put together you know, design and props, the costumes are pretty good. I mean, it is almost got the detail of an actual period drama. And then also as well, the production team did a lot of research about, and weirdly, about the way tea was served and Mm. poured and drunk in like the 1840s. And they actually put that into the, into the scenes, at least into the I think there's two scenes where they drink tea or maybe there's one, but they definitely put it into one of the scenes. And the thing I felt about this was that it was sort of a shame really, because all this like detailed attention to the production, to the, to the, to the costumes, to the sets, to, you know, to even to the mannerisms, the way the actors were acting. And it's all completely let down by the script because the lines that they say are so painful. I mean, we're not far off a Mills and Boone novel. Do you know what I mean? And I know what they're trying to do, but 
that it's just the dialogue is so terrible. It's so dreadful. I think the first scene with Lord Burley and and Janeway or Lucille Davenport, as she is supposedly supposed to be known, when he says something like, I'm not a very easy man to live with. You know, my wife knew this. I'm a difficult man. And, and she's like, I understand. I'm like, no, you don't. What do you mean you understand? Like, <laughs> like imagine if you introduced to somebody, like your new employer, yeah. like, like, like that. And you were like, yes, I understand. I'm thinking, no, this doesn't make any sense. And there's lots of lines like that where they just seem cliched. And actually, Janeway doesn't get to say that much. And you're right. And it's Janeway who's badly written. I think that's the key thing is because, I mean, and we see this in Voyager, obviously, when they do the holo novels. I mean, if you think of like Captain Proton, that's deliberately bad, but that's partly because it's sort of parodying this sort of real schlock, this this kind of story that is, is not meant to be very good. You know, it's meant to be kind of lowbrow culture, whereas obviously, although gothic fiction does have that element to it, and certainly you know, maybe in a, a previous generation of gothic novels, I suppose they, they do have that kind of baggage of being a bit over the top and a bit, I'm thinking like the mysteries of Udolfo and these kind of things that are seen as this kind of earlier generation's trash literature. Uh, you can't really say that about Jane Eyre. I mean, Jane Eyre is a very complex, sophisticated, interesting, psychologically kind of believable novel i'd say as much as it is also a gothic novel and the turn of the screw again is you know i would say is a brilliantly kind of incisive and uh, i mean you know creepy and kind of gnarly and 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 weird but quite believable kind of (laughs) believable ghost story if you know what i mean but it's like psychologically credible it's not it's not like a house of horrors it's not kind of just a a romp or whatever and i think maybe part of the problem is that it is it's that we're not quite sure how seriously to take this because it is a bit of a game and obviously when we had captain picard it was dixon hill and it was this kind of gumshoe gumshoe thing and it was kind of ridiculous anyway but i think you're right that part of it is the way that janeway plays along she seems to kind of almost it does feel a bit like she almost relishes being put into this kind of quite passive, quite kind of low status role. And it makes you sort of wonder, is that part of the appeal? Because, I mean, what Jerry Taylor said was she conceived of this hollow novel as a kind of stress reliever. And we do see that in, as you said, the doctor is uh, prescribing it. Basically, this is your kind of break. And she likened it to she used to enjoy herself reading like uh, airport novels, thrillers, those kind of things, you know, kind of really disposable kind of trash in a sense. But that's quite different from reading Jane Eyre in a way or, or reading, you know, one of these, one of these kind of books that we're talking about. And also, I don't know, there's this kind of thing she's saying, you know, it's about escapism. Well, yeah, if your, if your life is, you know, relatively mundane, then you escape into a thriller or something more exciting. But if your life is kind of exciting anyway, it seems a bit more problematic to me. And I mean, the example she gave, this is Jerry Taylor. Uh, she says it's the only place where she can forget about being a captain for a couple of hours and get into a completely different situation where she has a husband and she has children and she lives a life utterly unlike the one that she lives. Now, I do get that, that idea of like Janeway wants to escape from responsibility. She wants to escape from being the captain. And we see that like later on in Workforce and in other episodes where she kind of seems to have this, almost this desire to be normal, not to be the captain, not to be the kind of big person in charge. But I think that's kind of interesting. And especially this idea that she has a family. It's almost like we sort of saw that with Picard. You know, he was the kind of perpetually single captain. Uh, you know, he'd never had kids and so on. And there was always this kind of yearning uh, for that. With Janeway, it's a bit more complicated because we know she has a partner back home. And actually, the the Jane Eyre style storyline is, is sort of used to 
tease out the kind of the sort of meaning of that and, and you know how she's feeling about the time having passed and has she kind of moved on from her partner or is she still in love with him or you know all these kind of things but especially this idea that she's married with kids i mean that doesn't translate that obviously would have been in the wild west story doesn't translate to this story um except for this very strange feature that she's described as mrs davenport so her character is explicitly described as being i, I suppose she could be widowed but the assumption you'd make is that she's married which is very unusual for a governess i mean the governesses in these stories are usually you know uh young women you, you know kind of pretty much i mean jane eyre has i think worked as a teacher for a couple of years it's something that young unmarried women do and so then if there's a kind of potential for romance as there is in jane eyre with the employer that sort of makes sense in one way there's a kind of weird uh you know maybe an age difference or whatever but but jane of course is much older she's not 19 or 20 you, you know she's whatever kate mulgrew's age uh i guess sort of late thirties or whatever she was when she started Voyager. Uh, she's, you know, she's a grown woman. She's described as by implication, at least having been married, if not married at the time. We know in the kind of real world, so to speak, of Voyager, she's got a long-term partner and a dog, if not kids. Uh, and so there's this weird thing, you know, this whole thing of, is she cheating on Mark by falling in love with whatever his name is, oh, Lord God. Burley? Is she, <laughs> is she in the context of the story? Is she, is she cheating on a husband that we're supposed to assume that she has, you know, back home in wherever she, this governess came from. I mean, it's, it's a strange element, I think. The question, though, is out of all of this, like, you know, Jerry Taylor describes, you know, this is like buzz out material. What we're talking about is buzz out material. Like you would sit down and you'd watch, I don't know, a bunch of episodes of Glee or something, you know, like, oh God, not to, not to criticise Glee for anyone that loves Glee. But, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's not supposed to be real highbrow entertainment or entertainment that's supposed to, you know, really stretch you. This is this is her buzz out material. It's like her, living a fantasy. You know, she wants to fall in love with some, I don't know, big handsome employer and you know interact with children, teach children or whatever. But the thing is, does the audience really want to see that? And I think there is a disconnect between Janeway, a captain, and a woman in position of power, like being portrayed as pretending to be in a role of a servant and a subordinate. And I also think that. Apart from the fact that occasionally, very, it's very rarely they ever mention the fact that Janeway doesn't have children. I think Q mentions, Q mentions it in an episode, I think, doesn't he? He sort of says something like, you're very far away from home and, you know, you, you know, you're very lonely and you wonder if you ever have a child. But like, he says that, Janeway doesn't. And actually, Janeway never really actually talks about whether or not she'll ever have kids. And there is, she just, she just have connections with children. Obviously, there's, um, Naomi, is it Naomi, the little girl? You know? What's that? Naomi, yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she has a connection with her and she doesn't, you know, she seems to like children as far as we know, unlike Picard, who initially doesn't seem to like them. But she's quite comfortable she, with children. Uh, but in she a doesn't. Sort of aunt like role, I'd say. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's like we're not seeing her sort of sitting in her quarters, like longingly thinking about whether she's ever going to be a mother. But also, similarly, we don't really get a huge amount of like romantic frustration from her either. And I think that, in a way, is perhaps maybe a little bit more that I got what I got from these episodes is that she's kind of sexually frustrated <laughs> right yeah at, at least a little bit and that would tie in with um definitely with turn of the screw because the main character in turn of the screw is definitely I would say sexually frustrated in some way and she's on the border of hysteria 
Well, that certainly is a reading of the turn of the screw. I mean, turn of the screw. Uh, Not completely. Let's, but let's, let's, let's go into this now, since you since you brought it up. This is the, the big controversy over the turn of the screw, and in order to talk about it, I have to absolutely spoil the turn of the screw. I'm afraid. If you haven't read Turn of the Screw, uh, maybe pause this podcast. Um, <laughs> go and get it out of the library. There's a great audio book on Audible. It's only about four hours long. You can, as I say, it's a short. It's kind of kind of novella, I suppose. Go and enjoy the turn of the screw, which is great. But the turn of the screw has it is a very interesting, uh, gripping kind of quite psychological ghost story. It's also quite ambiguous, and it's ambiguous right up to the very end of the story. And what happens at the very end of the story is there's been this battle for the kind of souls of these two children, and the governess is convinced uh, because there are these ghosts that she she can see. No one else admits to having seen them, but she's convinced that the children can see them and that the children are kind of interacting with them and that the ghosts are corrupting the children. The ghosts are of two former servants uh, at the house who themselves had a kind of illicit affair. So there's this, when you talk about sexual frustration, there's this kind of, the ghosts sort of represent unrestrained sexuality in a sense in that i think it's even implied that they they uh a pregnancy resulted and the woman had to leave and, they, and then they both died basically and so there is is definitely that that element there that the ghosts represent this kind of unfettered sexuality which obviously the kind of conventional governess is not allowed to to kind of uh engage with but at the end of the story what happens is she sees the one of the ghosts the male ghost and she's with the boy at the time and she sort of forces him to kind of confess that he he sees the ghost and he does say the name of the guy and then she grabs him and embraces him and hugs him so tightly that then she realizes after she's been holding him thus this tightly for a, a minute or so that his heart has stopped and he's died and the big ambiguity around the turn of the screw really is did he die because of this kind of supernatural ghost experience in a sense i mean i, th- I think in in one sense the most kind of the straightest reading of that story, although many people say it's not very convincing, is that he was under a kind of curse or a spell that she effectively breaks the spell, which is what she's been trying to do to break the kind of evil hold on him. Uh, and his heart gives out and he dies. The other fairly strong resistant reading of that story is that she basically suffocates him unintentionally, unconsciously, and, and isn't even really necessarily aware that she's done it. And so when you go into that reading, and this was something that started happening, not when the story was first written, but uh, I think not until the 1930s, when kind of Freudian ideas were be- becoming more popular and particularly being applied to literature as well. And there was a guy called Wilson who gave this reading of the turn of the screw, basically saying, uh, there are no ghosts in this story. This is not a story about ghosts. This is a story about this woman's madness. Um, and no one else ever sees the ghosts. She's the only one who can see them. Uh, she's a making these assumptions about these children. And in this kind of Freudian sense, really, it's all about her own, as you say, repressed sexuality, that she has kind of is lusting after the master, just as Janeway, you know, possibly is lusting after the master of the house. She can't express that. So she kind of manifests her illicit desires as these kind of sexually freer uh, evil ghost characters um, and then ev- everything else is, is basically all about madness and all about her unconscious and this reading created a huge furore I mean people were absolutely furious at the time they were really angry about it and it became this kind of battle where basically you know Wilson was saying look that in the story the governess is 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 mad is deluded uh the, the, you know she's hysteric basically and then the response was to say this guy 
is is a hysteric himself to read the story like this. This is a ghost story. This is not a story about sex. This is not a story about um, the unconscious. Uh, this is, you know, a more conventional ghost story. And and it became this kind of real controversy, really, about what this story is about. So, it, but it's it's definitely it's a very interesting, very sort of knotty area. But certainly, you, you know, for Jerry Taylor or whoever writing these these stories in the nineteen nineties would almost certainly have been familiar if she was familiar with the turn of the screw would have been familiar with this kind of question that hangs over it and this ambiguity that uh maybe was not apparent when the story was first written but certainly as time went on and the story was reinterpreted in different ways kind of becomes almost what the story is about is this kind of central question what do you what do you think is really going on here the thing is it has to be a little bit about sex because otherwise the two ghosts like why put an affair between the two ghosts why not just have like the you know the governess fall from a great height or why not have there be some sort of other kind of sin it's a sexual sin that they committed you know and in these voyager episodes that have janeway's hollow novel in them there there definitely is a sex element to it because otherwise you know why include mark you know like she has to be like why include Mark? Like I mean, you could just have it just be like a more romantic story with Lord Burley. But it, I mean, it's the idea is sort of Lord Burley's kind of coming out with it suddenly, you know, like with intense passion, which is very much like Mister Rochester. But then there's a sexual element there in Jane Eyre, you know. I mean, absolutely. And in Jane Eyre, you've got this element of a, a lot of the time in Jane Eyre. Really, she, I mean, Jane Eyre is quite innocent in a sense, and she can't, you know, she has feelings for Rochester. He he keeps sort of saying. It, to the reader, it's fairly clear that he has feelings for her, but she's almost, she's almost blocking those out. Do you know what I mean? She, she, she gives a more innocent interpretation of things. She can't quite believe that he could have fallen in love with her. She can't almost imagine that desire because she sees herself as plain and unattractive and so on. Uh, but in fact, he has these very ardent feelings. And then when it becomes clear that he can't marry her because he has, spoiler alert, another <laughs> wife, a crazy wife hidden in the attic, he then wants her to be his mistress. Mm. He wants yeah, her to exactly. stay. I mean, you know, it's not just out of love. It's that he actually wants to sleep with her. And we're talking about Victorians and Edwardians trying to explore this sort of sort of sexual desire in a way that I guess would be okay for the time. I'm not saying that Charlotte Bronte was... You not know. to mention, you know, the parson's daughter uh, coming up with this storyline. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, um, but but you're right. I mean, that's definitely that's absolutely there, and there is that kind of suggestion. And he has that speech in Jane Eyre as well, doesn't he? About I can't, uh, I'm not going to attempt to. Uh, well, I'll paraphrase it, but you know, go and read the original because it's a lot better. Uh, but basically, about you know, not being uh, held in by convention, not kind of just doing things the legal way, the right way, and so on. But but this idea of these kind of immortal souls and these kind of passions that are kind of stronger than all of that and, and they're more valuable than all that somehow and it certainly it comes out in the voyager episode um in persistence of vision which is the third of these episodes that really plays with with the hollow novel and i think one of the, the first one cathexis and this one definitely kind of play with the kind of mood of the hollow novel to some extent because particularly in persistence of vision the hollow novel characters start appearing to janeway because she starts having these kind of hallucinations everyone starts hallucinating ultimately but to begin with for most of the episode it's her that we're kind of focused on and start seeing the hollow novel characters in the real world which is very much of course what happens in the turn of the screw with this question are the ghosts real only you know the governess is the only one seeing them but as far as the sort of ostensibly as far as the story is concerned they are real and it's just no one else can see them in the voyager episode that's a quite moving scene actually where she kind of realizes that 
she starts to feel that she's going mad. Basically, she's losing her mind. There's the scene between Janeway and Neelix where she's, um, you know, this thing about the cucumber sandwiches. She thinks she's seen them in the mess hall. And in fact, they were from the Holler novel. Um, and, and the way Mulgrew plays it actually is very, quite sort of underplayed almost, but this kind of creeping sense of actually, is, is Janeway losing her grip? Is she losing her mind really? Is she, you know, seeing things that aren't there? But there's also this kind of intense sexual element. So not only is there this issue about is she cheating on Mark by, having this uh, sort of flirtation with Lord Burley and, a you know, sort of cinematic snog with Lord Burley. There's also, you know, we get um, Belana Torres having this fancy no, where she goes no. to bed with Chicote, which, you know, is, is totally <laughs> horrifying. <off> the wall. <laughs> it was horrifying. And, and oh never, never spoken of or picked up again. But at the same time, is again, that kind of, you know, suddenly these kind of, it, it's the return of the repressed in kind of Freudian ideas. And they even talk about that at the end of the episode uh, about, you know, what do these things mean? Uh, where have these ideas come from and the answer is well they've come from your unconscious somewhere you know whether that's something that you actually really want there's there's some kind of spark of a desire within her there's there's something within her that that hallucination has kind of picked up on and has has brought out and that's what's kind of scary about these stories and and for Janeway there's also the same thing that there is something about her that she she is you know is she moving on from Mark well she does want to have this kind of flirtation with the holodeck character it's it's almost a prefiguration of what we see in Fairhaven, I suppose. You know, Fairhaven is the kind of, you know, the, the ultimate kind of extension of this and quite a similar kind of romance, quite a similar kind of character. I mean, it's Ireland in that case and not England, but obviously these, you know, these kind of old fashioned men that she seems to go with. Of course, by the time you get to Fairhaven, it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's not so much reader I married him, it's reader I reprogrammed him, which is what Janeway never quite manages to do here. But it's definitely that kind of idea, you know, um, setting up the idea of Janeway romancing these kind of hollow men uh, and and the kind of... Um, it's interesting because it sets up Janeway and romance as something that is a game, almost, that is not real. Do you know what I mean? And, and even with the guy in Fairhaven, okay, she starts to develop feelings for him, but it's very much in a kind of playful way. Uh, and in some ways, maybe that makes it safer for her. Do you know what I mean? Like, she can have this kind of flirtation and she's not really cheating on her you know on her partner because it's not going to go anywhere it's a hologram it's just a kind of game uh it doesn't really mean anything certainly that's what she's telling herself that it doesn't you know it doesn't really count as cheating if it's if it's just a holodeck character it's not a real person but i suppose there's that sort of question because there is obviously some kind of guilt associated with it there is some sort of question associated with it i mean it's a bit depressing though isn't it because in the meantime mark like thinks she's dead and marries a co-worker you yeah, know, and, and I mean. like, and so, <laughs> and I've always thought these men that she's going for are very similar. Like they're all this kind of sort of handsome, sort of older, you know, kind of intelligent men, sort of very refined, you know, I guess the guy for Haven's a little bit different, but mm. basically I just, I feel like she's going for like a holographic version of of Chakotay with the guy in Fairhaven and mm. in, a, in a way and obviously you know she's a captain so she can't really have an, aff- an affair with any anyone under her command but in a way it the whole thing's a bit, a bit depressing it's I think it's even more depressing than the idea that her desire to be around children means that she ends up being a governess to two horrific holographic children the children are creepy <laughs> they are like gothic nasty children really aren't they and they're awful they're, they're, they're awful yeah they're unbearable. Yeah. I mean, to the point where I mean, they're I was the like, worst. Oh. They're the worst element of the whole thing. Both. I mean, both they're awful. Like they're supposed to be awful, but they are also awful. Unfortunately, uh, like <laughs> their performances are weird, and you know, I mean, their kids, so whatever. But yeah. they do kind of slightly let the whole thing down. I think uh, for me, anyway. But I mean, 
yeah, the whole thing is, is, it is very strange. And it, but it, you're right. There is a certain sort of type quite, I mean, actually, although Lord Burley says he's this difficult guy to get on with, he doesn't really seem it. He's, it's, it's quite sort of solid, kind of quite, kind of calm, quite sort of quite boring characters. She always seems to go with, um, <laughs> seems to go for. Do you know what I mean? They're not very, they're not very exciting. They don't really ever seem like her equal somehow. That's the thing. She always, they always seem much less. I mean, obviously, she's the lead character of the show, so it's, maybe it's hard to expect them to kind of match her in any way. But I mean, like, they, they, they don't feel like very interesting love interests. They just feel like love interests. I suppose they feel quite disposable. Uh, and of course, they are pretty much, you know, when they, when they come up, they don't ever sort of go anywhere. Um, those, those storylines in a sense, they are just, I mean, I know Fairhaven, we get a second episode with, with this one, we get three out of it in the end. But I mean, they're, they're kind of, they're a bit sort of nothingy, these love interests, I think. And the Lord Burley character, I mean, you know, yeah, it's kind of five minutes in the episode of Voyager. It's, it's, you know, that's what we're getting, but he doesn't really have Mr. Rochester or Mr. Darcy or one of that, one of those kind of archetypal romantic characters that, that he's sort of, sort of playing on in a way. He doesn't, I don't feel you get that kind of fiery quality of him somehow do you know what i mean you you, you know he he's not mr rochester he's a kind of cheap knockoff he's just a bit grumpy let's kind of talk a little bit about this i mean does the storyline invoke the cliches about what people think women want you know that, that they want to be swept off their feet by men who feel they're sort of superior i mean mm. i thought it was quite a cliched idea of what what people think a career woman might fantasize about which i was like i don't know is that really what she would fantasize about and also um is there something victorian about janeway like does she share any of the characteristics of jane eyre like strong resistance to being bullied courage to face fear and isolation willingness to stand up for herself i mean jane eyre is also quite a powerful character even though she is a governess and she is she kind is. of in a subservient position yeah, you're right. And I mean, as a child, Jane Eyre, for example, is, you, you know, she's getting in fights with her kind of with the, the um, relatives who are looking after her. She's getting in trouble. She's very outspoken. She always says and does what she thinks right. You know, she she doesn't kind of toe the line. Uh, she's very spirited, bold. I mean, yeah, in that sense, maybe she does have some of those qualities in common with Janeway. She's also an artist. And, and, the, and the artwork that Jane Eyre paints, because there's a or maybe she draws it. I can't remember. There's a scene where, where, uh, Mr. Rochester is kind of complimenting her on this strange artwork and it's all quite sort of mysterious and elemental. And again, this kind of idea, which you get in the Bronte's novels, you know, both in this one and, and say in Wuthering Heights or something like that about the kind of, um, you know, these souls and this, this, this kind of world beyond the kind of humdrum, uh, material world, if you know what I mean. This idea of something a little bit not necessarily supernatural exactly exactly but kind of spiritual and interestingly you know when mr rochester meets jane eyre to begin with he makes these jokes about her being a fairy you know being of kind of um he says she has the look of another world now janeway of course literally has the look of another world to most people who meet her uh in the course of voyage or at least she should do if they you know made a bit of effort with the makeup i mean she you know she's literally from another world and there is this sense that that jane eyre is this kind of quite She's got that both she and Mr. Rochester have something a little bit kind of elemental about them. They've got something about their, their souls are quite kind of, maybe not quite so much as Kathy and Heathcliff, but the same, there's something a bit deeper, a bit richer, a bit stranger about them somehow. And I suppose you could say, I mean, I don't know if you'd say that about, about Janeway. She seems in some ways quite kind of conventional and quite sort of starfly and so on. But insofar as Jane Eyre is, is not a kind of sappy, uh, heroine is, is not a kind of, 
total, you know, governess with no agency. I mean, she has limited agency, but she speaks her mind, certainly. Uh, maybe she's a good analogue for Janeway. The problem is that Janeway in the Holler novel doesn't have any of those characteristics. She doesn't ever stand up to anyone. She doesn't, you know, even when the kids are being unspeakably rude to her, she sort of says, yes, sir, no, sir. And, I guess she stands uh, you know, up to Mrs. Templeton, though, doesn't she? Maybe she stands up to Mrs. Templeton, but then she, right at the beginning, she's kind of a, she is an equal. She's not a subordinate in a sense to Mrs. Templeton, is she? If she's no, the governess true, yeah. and she's the housekeeper. It's kind of, they're more on an even footing, but she's, I think that's part of what is uncomfortable about it is the way that she doesn't really, you know, even J- Jane Eyre stands up to Mr. Rochester when she thinks he's being unreasonable. Uh, she tells him so when she thinks he's talking nonsense, she tells him he's talking nonsense. That's one of the reasons he likes her is that she's quite, uh, forthright in a sense. And even the governess in the turn of the screw, I suppose, um, she, she's not so much doing that. She, I mean, because a major plot point of the story is she's promised not to tell the master any, not to bring him any trouble, basically. He's, he's, he's this sort of handsome guy who's employed her, uh, and, but he's quite kind of hands off and sort of, um, but basically says, look, don't bother me. I don't want to hear about any of it. So she can't ever go to him. She can't ever explain what's happening. Um, but I suppose insofar as she sees herself as having this mission to kind of fight for the souls of the children, she has a kind of agency of a sort. She has a kind of, you know, she comes up with a plan about how to do it. Uh, she's more active. She's sort of resisting the world that she's wandered into, if you see what I mean. Um, whereas Janeway, I mean, maybe if this hollow novel had, had continued and Jerry Taylor did want to sort of continue it and eventually get to the end of this story and, you know, presumably find out that the wife is still alive or, you know, whatever it is, it's on the fourth floor. Maybe Janeway would have become more active in a sense in, in unveiling that. But it certainly, it feels like the, insofar as it's like a, it, you know, if, if the Hollow novel is like a game, it's like a game where she doesn't have all that much agency or control. And arguably that's true of, of, you know, computer games or whatever. You're kind of following, even if you feel like you're the active participant, you're kind of following a set narrative anyway. But it's interesting. The other, the other analog that Jerry Taylor used was an audiobook. She said basically it's like people listening to audiobooks, which is really a very passive, you know, you just sit there or lie there or whatever and sort of absorb the story. But this sort of idea that somehow if you, if you're reading or it's an audiobook or whatever, you feel like you're kind of, participating in it but really you aren't and i think it's interesting that she saw it in terms of an audiobook not in terms of say a computer game or something like that i know this was the 90s but you know it, it kind of emphasizes that sort of passive element of the the player being in not actually in a very active role somehow well yeah so the thing that i thought was interesting was that um this is the only hollow novel that we see in star trek that's used by a woman it seems curious that it centers around home and hearth and children Whereas the hollow novels used by men, such as Picard, Bashir and Data, all involve action and agency and violence as well. They also involve violence, but they involve some sort of like activity that requires them to do something. Whereas I wasn't really sure what Janeway was required to do in this situation, except like drink tea and eat cucumber sandwiches with these two obnoxious children and, you know, and basically then fall into Lord Burley's arms. So it's interesting that we don't see the hollow novels of other female characters like i kind of would be interested to know what like i don't know balana's hollow novel would be you know even harry kim's hollow novel well, we, saw, like we saw one of balana's I mean, hollow novels and that was pretty great wasn't it you but know, was she that a hollow novel her friends no it wasn't she went and watched all her friends being killed didn't she i just I mean, mean i'm not sure that's, that's what we'd see yeah no you're right you're you know right. like something with a fictional narrative i guess so what i was going to ask now is that I mean, obviously, hollow novels allow us to see the unexpected sides of Star Trek characters that we wouldn't normally see. But so 
it did test well with audiences, this storyline. Um, critics didn't like it either. And so eventually it was obviously dropped. So we never find out what's on the fourth floor of the Burley mansion. And I agree with you. I think it probably is the wife, the, f- the first wife, either still alive or like, I don't know, strung up, forced to play the piano every night. You know, with, I don't know, like tied to the, tied to the piano or something. But so the idea, I suppose it was good in theory, but didn't work out in practice and fans and critics didn't like it. And Jerry Taylor did write a conclusion to the story, which was never filmed. And then obviously the Holland novel was replaced with Janeway seeking counsel from Leonardo da Vinci. And that is, you know, that apparently, well, the writers said that they thought that might appeal better with male audiences. And they were trying to also bring male audiences in to Janeway's character and get them invested in Janeway and that they didn't think that male audiences would enjoy this gothic hollow novel. And, and I think that's interesting. And personally, I quite like the relationship between Janeway and Da Vinci. And I think that brings out kind of interesting aspects of her as a scientist. It kind of, it, partly because she's, I, I know she's, yeah, she's Katerina or whatever, but she feels more herself. She's, she's basically Janeway pretending that Janeway lived in Leonardo da Vinci's time. And, and, you know, obviously, not not telling him too much about f- future inventions and so on but she's she's much more recognizably herself she's not playing this kind of character but the other thing is that there's no story there there is no novel do you know what i mean there's no narrative um that's just a kind of it, it's it's a different kind of world it's more like fairhaven or whatever it's a kind of world and you go and interact with the characters but there's no narrative progression whereas really you, you know with it with this kind of gothic storyline it's all about the mystery you know what's going on with the wife um you know everyone's saying she's dead but clearly she isn't dead or or, or whatever and it's it's there's a kind of narrative that's being played through so yeah maybe Janeway's going to have to teach some uh lessons to these annoying children but really that's just a stage you know that's kind of a step on the way because at some point in that scene some you know she's going to hear a scream from upstairs or whatever it is do you know what i mean and that's the kind of storyline so i don't know i think it's kind of interesting they replace the hollow novel you're right they give the this kind of idea of the hollow novels to these male characters to play out these kind of quite sort of I was going to say, not necessarily macho, but quite sort of action-oriented fantasies. And, you know, so it's Tom Paris and it's sort of seducing the girls and, you know, firing the ray guns and so on. Even Beowulf, you know, with Harry Kim, it's like slaying the monster. It's all these kind of things. That that's what narrative comes to mean is kind of this heroic narrative where you uh, go out and, you know, you get a love interest, you fight the battle. It's quite sort of conventional sort of Hollywood action narrative in a sense. Um, and we don't really, I think, ever see another attempt to employ a different kind of narrative whereas obviously you know these kind of novels something like Jane Eyre is not you know it's, it's not an action adventure story it's no it's not uh you know so they, they they made that book a few years ago didn't they of um Pride and Prejudice and Zombies I suppose you know they could have kind of gone in that direction but it's you, you know it's 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 not that kind of story and maybe that was quite a bold thing in itself in some ways but I think I just I think it was a mistake I don't think it worked for Janeway as a character. I think the Wild West thing, I would have loved to have seen that. I think that would have been, would have been brilliant. But, um, you know, this one, it didn't quite work out. And you're right. After that, it does sort of feel as if the holodeck becomes again, this kind of place for boys to play their games, you know, is, is sort of the way it often seems in Star Trek. And Voyager does have these kind of standing set kind of hollow programs. You know, they've got Sandrine's, they've got the um, Neelix's kind of beach resort or whatever, but nothing really, the whole point of those places is nothing ever really happens there. 
you know, got Fairhaven, the same kind of idea. This idea of these hollow novels, it becomes the hollow novels are something that the boys do. Uh, and even the doctor gets obsessed with writing them. But, you, you know, it's funny because actually what we see in, um, uh, worst case scenario, which is the episode where Seska leaves this kind of booby trapped hollow novel, basically, uh, is that Janeway is th- th- brilliant at writing hollow novels. You know, she's kind of reprogramming it. She's coming up with a new ending. She's kind of, you, you know, she's writing this story on the fly. And actually, as much as we go on about how Tom Paris is supposedly this great writer of, you know, trashy hollow novels, uh, Janeway is the one who seems to be very good at that. You know, she seems to have a real talent for, for doing it, but it's something that we don't really get to explore that much with her character so why do you think that this particular storyline didn't appeal to audiences i mean do you think they, the audiences want something different from their captain i just think it was probably the wrong storyline i mean i think you know they obviously they wanted to do the wild west thing i don't know how quickly they had to come up with an alternative I don't really know why, you know, if what Jerry Taylor was saying was she enjoyed reading airport thrillers, uh, why didn't she get, you know, Janeway could have been in some kind of like, you know, 80s or 90s kind of, um, you know, trashy thriller. That would have been more fun. I think I'd have enjoyed seeing that more in a way. I don't know what made her go to this storyline, except that, you know, I suppose she's thinking this is a female captain. What a kind of iconic women, what's kind of women's fiction, what a w- women's literature. And obviously Jane Eyre is one of the kind of big stories that might pop into your head in a way. And maybe because the whole gothic thing, I mean, I think they do. One thing I like about these episodes, I mean, Learning Curve is a bit of an exception. I think with Learning Curve, really the, the hollow novel is just there as the kind of old fashioned Michael Pillar dumb show at the start of the show. So it's in the teaser and it's basically the scene where Janeway is struggling to teach the two kids and they're difficult pupils. And it just sets up thematically this idea. This is an episode about Tuvok struggling to teach these kind of badly behaved students and it doesn't really go anywhere. But the other two episodes that, that use the hollow novel, one thing I like about them is they are both slightly kind of they're quite eerie stories. You know, one of them is effectively a ghost story, Cathexis, uh, where there are these bodies being possessed by ghosts. And there's this whole question about who's, who's the alien. They keep saying, where's the alien? Who, who is the alien? And no one can really be trusted. Obviously, there's a kind of thematic parallel there with something like the turn of the screw and these kind of ideas of these, you know, who, who is who they say they are is, and there's, there are kind of sinister moments in that episode. Persistence of vision. Again, you know, we talked about how sexuality plays into it and connects to the kind of themes of the hollow novel, but also this idea of, you know, is Janeway losing her mind? Who can see things and can't see things? You know, you have in that episode the idea of Kess seeing these holodeck, uh, imaginings of Janeway's where basically she's seeing what Janeway's hallucinating, but on one level, it's almost exactly what happens in Turn of the Screw, where the governess is saying she can see ghosts and no one else can see them. And Kess obviously is the kind of psychic character who, who sort of sees these things. And I think, you know, they, these are both, I think those actually quite good early Voyager episodes. Uh, they're a little bit schlocky, but they are quite creepy. They both have genuinely kind of creepy moments in them. And I think there is a kind of logic to having this kind of gothic fiction in these episodes. The, the, the problem maybe is that Voyager itself can do creepy now and then. It cannot really do gothic. You know, there's, I mean, DS9 could probably do gothic, but Voyager is so brightly lit. It's so kind of, the, the tone ultimately is so kind of upbeat and, and, and positive. It's, it's like the, the world of Voyager is so different from the world of a kind of gothic novel that I think there's a slight kind of mismatch, but it, it does kind of try to do it in its own way. So, you know, 
you have this kind of creepy scene about, you know, uh, who's being controlled by the alien in Cathexis, but it's all about studying memory engrams. It's all so scientific. It's so kind of futuristic, you know, even compared to other Star Trek Voyager is really always about the science. It's always about the kind of quite sort of clean and clinical sort of approach somehow uh, that maybe doesn't marry up with that. But at the same time, it, it does have these kind of really creepy scenes in it i think in, in both those episodes and that absolutely ties into the the hollow novel but maybe part of the problem really is that the hollow novel feels like although it's feeding into it thematically it's also kind of holding it back because the hollow novel which is supposedly the gothic fiction is not scary at all there's nothing creepy about it it just seems like a crappy tv drama do you know what i mean um and maybe that's part of the problem is that it doesn't really it's not funny it's not like dixon hill which is entertaining because it's so ropey and bad it's kind of it's slightly unclear whether it's meant to be good or bad. And it kind of actually, although it's thematically feeding into the content of the episodes, at the same time, it also seems to be sort of dragging them down a bit. I don't know. What do you think? Why Why? Why do you think it... I mean, do you, well, first of all, do you think that it was a mistake? I mean, maybe aside from this question of what it does to Jane, what do you think as a kind of dramatic choice, is it a mistake? You know, does it hurt those episodes? And if so, why? Or, or you know, w- was that inherent in the idea of doing this kind of Jane Eyre story or could they have done it differently I think there is something quite Victorian about Janeway I think actually there is some similarities between her and Jane Eyre and I think both of them are quite isolated women and a lot of Victorian heroines are isolated women so I sort of think like there is something Victorian heroine like about Janeway so I don't think a Victorian hollow novel is a bad idea but I think making her a governess, putting her in a position where she's teaching children, making her a romantic interest, I think just doesn't work. If they'd made her like a Victorian archaeologist, or they'd, you know, made her a Victorian explorer, or they'd put her in some sort of strange hollow novel like, I don't know, 2000 Leagues Under the Sea or War of the Worlds or I mean, I suppose that's more Edwardian than Victorian, but you know what I mean? Like if they'd done something sort of almost HG Wells, like, you know, something, something a bit more exciting, I think that would have worked. I think the problem is, yeah, like you said, there's not some, there's not enough Gothic atmosphere in Voyager as it is. I think Uh, the the problem with Voyager and always in my mind is there's always too much technobabble. There's too much technology, too much technological explanation for things that is sometimes it sort of detracts from the emotion and the sort of atmosphere of the storylines. I think some of the storylines can be actually fairly creepy, but because they always have some sort of technological reason for why these things are happening and they always have some sort of technological solution, which is a mythical solution. What we're talking about is magic because some of the stuff that Balana says that she's going to do and that she pulls out of a hat is actually just magic, really, because it doesn't mean anything because they were just writing, they're writing gobbledygook nonsense, really. And in the, in the, uh, the last episode, Persistence of Vision, there's this scene which could be quite creepy where all the crew are sort of standing there completely sort of hypnotized by the fact that they're seeing these visions and cares is walking through the, the ship to get to engineering. I mean, they could have made that a lot more creepy. You know, they could have had like life support start to fail. The lights go down, you know, pipes leaking out sort of atmospheric smoke. And she's walking through the corridors and all the crew are sort of standing there with their eyes hot, like open 
visions of horror on their faces, completely still. But instead, she's walking through brightly lit corridors. There doesn't seem to be much threat to her. And then she gets to a, a, a console in engineering and the doctor gives her some sort of mathematical equation over a video link. And I'm like, there's nothing frightening about this whatsoever. This is like, this is like a math class. <laughs> well, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I take your point. I, I, I know what you mean. There's that kind of element. On the other hand, I think that episode gets pretty, maybe it's not gothic, but it gets pretty creepy and, and dark. I mean, like that bit at the end where her face is all sort of melting and all, there's, there's kind of real horror in it. Do you know what I mean? It's quite kind of horrific. There are kind of sinister scenes. I mean, I actually found the scene, although it's a bit cheesy, but the stuff with Kess seeing Janeway hallucinating and all that kind of thing. I feel there's something a little bit creepy about that. I don't know whether I found that episode more creepy this time around, having just uh, reread The Turn of the Screw. Maybe that kind of put me in this kind of sort of primed me to see the kind of creepiness in it. But even in Cathexis as well, there's that scene between Janeway and Tuvok where there's this kind of realisation at some point that because Tuvok and Kess are found kind of unconscious in the turbo lift at one point, And then the doctor realises that Kess actually wasn't knocked unconscious by this alien thing or whatever it was, uh, that, that Kess was uh, Vulcan nerve pinched. And there's this sort of moment where Janeway's in her ready room with Tuvok talking to him and suddenly sort of starts to realise, actually, is he the antagonist? Do you know what I mean? Is he the alien? And there is that kind of creepy element of not quite knowing who to trust, not quite knowing... Um, there's a moment as well where she realises that she's given her command code to the Doctor, Tuvok has deactivated the Doctor, therefore the plan is clearly to possess her. And she realises she's going to be possessed herself. And again, that's very much in the kind of mould of this, you know, something like the turn of the screw, this idea of these ghosts that want to control. But what's scary about it is the governess becomes convinced that it's the way that they look at the children, that she sees them looking at these children as if they kind of want to have them, they want to control them, they want to you know, possess them. She says it's not that they hate them, it's this kind of desire to have them somehow. And I think there is something of that in the kind of creepy, in these moments that are quite creepy, even despite the kind of Voyager trappings. Um, and I suppose you've got, you know, we've got the, the thunder and lightning in the gothic hollow novel. You've got these kind of mysterious nebula, uh, that's in a kind of this sort of stormy nebula. That's kind of Voyager's sort of equivalent of it. On the other hand, of course, you know, say with Cathexis, you've ultimately got this revelation that although the Tuvok side of the story is quite creepy, a lot of the stuff that seems to be creepy, uh, it turns out it's Chakotay. So there is a ghost, there is a ghost, but it's a, you know, a good, good ghost. Chakotay, the friendly ghost, basically, uh, is kind of haunting the ship and, and, and doing good all the time. So I suppose maybe you could say it slightly undercuts it in that way. But I mean, I don't know. I don't, like I say, I don't mind these episodes. I think they're, they're, you know, by the standards of kind of season one or early season two Voyager, they, they work fairly well. I just don't know whether does this kind of gothic hollow novel work. I, I think maybe it doesn't work on its own terms. It's not so much that it doesn't work in these episodes. It's that it just doesn't work as those like five minute sections. Do you know what I mean? That they don't quite land. Well, yeah, I think also it doesn't work with Janeway. I think that's the big problem for me is it doesn't work with her uh, as a character. I think that if, I, I mean, it's hard to think about who this gothic Hollow novel would work with, like if you put it in Next Generation, would it work with Picard? Like, would Picard work as a gothic hero? You know, if you put it in Deep Space Nine, would you know O'Brien work as a gothic hero? It might work with Doctor Crusher, though. I mean, it might work with a more 
with like a sexual ghost or even with troy <laughs> well well yeah exactly i mean we kind of had that in a way but do you know what i mean because she's not i mean crusher is not a particularly i mean not so you know she's obviously very competent she knows what she's doing and so on but she is quite she's not a very commanding presence if you know what i mean she is more sort of nurturing you can kind of imagine her stepping into the role of the governess or whatever you can sort of imagine her going along with things a little bit more whether that would be a good thing i mean i don't know that it would do anything for her character in the same way as i don't know that it does anything for janeway's character but it maybe wouldn't feel so jarring somehow i think there's something about it with these episodes that you sort of feel you can't think what is janeway doing here why you know if this is her fantasy what is what is it telling us about about her because as much as you know you, you you sounded horrified when i mentioned Bellana having this fantasy about sleeping with chakotay and i agree that seems to come out of nowhere and kind of go nowhere but i suppose there's this sort of question you know what are we i mean in terms of watching voyager what is seeing these kind of glimpses into these people's fantasy lives what are we learning about them i mean with picard's fantasy life we learned that as much as he's this kind of quite straight-laced, serious diplomat or whatever, there's a part of him that kind of longs to do something a bit more action-adventure and a bit more fun. I don't know, what what do we learn about Janeway from seeing that she chose this? And also, this is Janeway Lambda, you know, what were Alpha, Beta, Gamma, do you know, do you know what I mean? What were, the, what were the previous novels that she's either worked her way through or, or rejected to get to this one? And also, do we want to see it? Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, I think maybe that's the question. You do know, we want to see their fantasy do, life? Do we want I mean, to see, I mean... Yeah. Or, or do we want to see Janeway's fantasy life? I mean, maybe we want to see Picard's fantasy life. I don't know. I mean, it depends on the character, doesn't it? Like, I think we do want to see Data's fantasy life. You know, we do want to see Data try and be Sherlock Holmes because there's lots of sides to the Data that aren't maybe obvious, you know, because he's an android, he's not completely human. But I'm not sure we, we do want to see Janeway's fantasy life. Well, also, Data can somehow still be, he can be Data and be Sherlock Holmes. He can be, do you know what I mean? It can, being, Data being Sherlock Holmes is kind of Data plus somehow. Whereas I think the problem with Janeway being Mrs. Davenport is like a subtraction from Janeway. That's the problem. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like, it, it, it doesn't feel like Janeway plus. It feels like Janeway minus somehow. Yeah. And the things that we do see about Janeway that I think appeal a lot more is stuff like her, love of coffee you know like i think we want to see that she likes coffee i think we enjoy that aspect of her character or even when she ordered coffee ice cream in persistence of vision and she sat down to eat the coffee ice cream i felt like i was getting much more of an insight into her character from that tiny tiny little like tiny little bit of scene than all of the gothic hollow novel stuff but it does tie into this whole question, I suppose, with Janeway, which was there right from the beginning, wasn't it? Of is she, you know, is having a female captain, does she have to be like a man? Does she have to not have romantic, you know, or sexual feelings? Does she, do you know what I mean? What, how does her femininity kind of play out? And maybe, maybe the answer is that this kind of, this is kind of early Voyager, that this is kind of an element of that sort of anxiety of like, that they're always anxious that Janeway, either she's too feminine and therefore she loses authority somehow, or they make her too authoritative and then she uh, is no longer a woman. And somehow maybe this idea was that like by putting her in this kind of old fashioned way, you know, by putting her in this old dress with a corset and everything, it's it, it's sort of a way of like, it's putting her in a very kind of feminized role, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Compared to her Starfleet uniform, it's putting her in a, it's basically putting her in a dress, you know, aside from anything else. Um, and it's kind of linking her to this sort of earlier old fashioned kind of model of 
femininity in a way, rather than the kind of futuristic aspirational model of femininity. But that in itself has a kind of negative element to it. Do you know what I mean? Insofar as that's, it's not particularly progressive to, to dress her up, um, in that way. I mean, arguably you could say it's not particularly progressive for Picard to go around, you know, shooting guns and, you know, romancing femme fatales or for Bashir to be doing the same thing in his kind of James Bond thing. But at the same time, I do sort of wonder whether it's kind of in the same area as this kind of obsession with, you know, what should her hair look like? Should it be up or down or, you know, long or short or, you know, all this kind of thing. It's, it's like, we, we don't know how to cope with having a woman in this role. You know, what do, what do women do? They like period dramas. They, you know, do you know what I mean? It's this sort of, there's, there's something slightly, like it's trying to prove something, but I'm not even a hundred percent sure what it's trying to prove. Yeah. And there is this weird idea that she would put on this costume and in her quarters and then walk through the corridors of the ship to the holodeck <laughs> yeah. in this Victorian costume. I'm not sure that, I mean, that, that is something I kind of do want to see. I want to see the, like the crew's reactions to her walking past them, like in a corset and crinoline. I was quite disappointed though, that when she was called to the bridge, she obviously got changed. Yeah, Cause I, thought, I know. You know there'd be potential for that, like Captain Picard on the bridge in generations in his kind of naval outfit, you know, actually Janeway commanding the ship through a crisis, uh, dressed in the outfit would have been quite interesting. And, to al- watch, and also the idea that this is actually a crisis, but she has time to go take off this ridiculously huge Victorian get up, like this dress <laughs> and put her yeah. and change her hair as well and put on her uniform and change her hair. I think the thing that's kind of interesting about this is well for one thing making Janeway sort of I would say maybe romantically frustrated if not sexually frustrated because she's a captain she can't have a relationship with anyone in her crew and I know they're far away from home so that limits her choices but this isn't something you see with the other captains you know Cisco has relationships most primarily with a civilian there's a civilian available Picard doesn't seem to have a problem with sleeping with random aliens, you know, even though he does say he can't have a relationship with people in his crew and that is frustrating for him. He does end up, you know, having no, no lack of women uh, in other ways. Picard does end up having relationships. So you don't see, I mean, even Archer's got a girlfriend or at least has an affair. You don't see this sort of... Friend with benefits by the looks of it. Yeah, you don't see this problem with... (laughs) male captains so I, I do think there's a level of sexism there but there is a link to Janeway's hair and, and and Cisco which I never thought about before which was pointed out on Twitter by one of our podcasters actually on Track FM Justin and he said that actually there was a lot of sort of concern about Cisco's hair because they didn't want to make Cisco look too oh, I don't know what the word would be like too thuggish, too ghetto, and uh, because he's a black, because he's a black man, and it's interesting to me that they're concerned about the look of the black captain, and they're concerned about the look of the female captain, and that's sort of you know that's that's concerning. That then it, then it is about diversity. Then you are concerned. Then you are also playing to stereotypes, even though you're trying to destroy stereotypes. If you see what I'm saying. And in both cases, arguably, what they're doing is trying to, I mean, I, I, I think you could say that, you know, when Janeway moves to the kind of turning her hair down later on, it's, it's maybe when the character comes to 
she is played as a bit more maternal. She's played in some ways, not necessarily more feminine. I mean, I think early Voyager Janeway is quite feminine in quite a sort of old fashioned way. You know, she sort of does a, uh, you know, raises her eyebrows and she kind of swoons quite a lot in, in that way that Kate Mulgrew does. But in terms of her presentation, you know, the hair is up. It's quite neat. It's quite tight. You know, people call it the bun of steel, don't they? Because it's her hair is very unfeminine in that sense, in that it's up and it's kind of quite stiff and so on. Again, so it's kind of the hair is sort of, working against her being a woman. And you could say the same thing, I suppose, was true with Avery Brooks. You know, yeah, he wanted to have his shaved head and his goatee beard. And they wanted him to have, you know, not a shaved head and no beard and make him sort of safer somehow, make him a bit more kind of more cuddly and less, you know, intense or whatever, which arguably was connected to the fact of him, you know, being a black actor and, and not wanting that kind of... It's a bit like with, with Geordie, when they had the casting of Geordie. I don't know if you've ever seen the casting document. It said, you know, we do not want street types for this character. You know, this this kind of idea of like, yeah, we do, you know, we want the black captain, but we we don't want him to be scary. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of the idea that somehow bald Cisco with the beard is, is kind of scary. And he, I mean, Cisco is, is in, not scary, but he is, he's quite intimidating. He's quite a kind of commanding you know, and he should be. He's, that's a big part of his character is that he, there's that whole thing about how he intimidates Worf. Season one, Cisco would not intimidate Worf, I don't think. That's something that kind of developed as the character grew and developed and so on. And maybe with both these, uh, captains actually, you know, and if you look at the shots, you know, you can see the images from Caretaker that were filmed with Janeway with the hair down, that then famously they spent some huge sum of money reshooting all those scenes with the bun of steel. And then eventually they kind of, went back on that and, and, and did let her have her hair down and kind of made her character maybe, I don't know if you'd say she was softer or whatever it is, but in terms of the hair, certainly that was the, the look changed. And with Cisco, the same thing. Eventually they kind of, you know, they let him have the goatee, they let him shave the head and so on. And they kind of, he ended up visually kind of where he wanted to be all along. But but you, it's interesting that Justin said that, you know, yeah, the studio were kind of resistant and the the moves that they were making around these characters' hair were kind of quite, conservative in a way. And I think there's an interesting parallel in Discovery, actually, that with um, Seneca Martin-Green, all the kind of uh, advanced publicity for Discovery, all the, you know, even if you look at like the first of the tie-in novels and so on, and, and the kind of the main publicity image that they still use is of her with her hair, uh, which is kind of straightened as it is in um, in the Vulcan Hello and Battle at the Binary Stars. And actually, for most of Discovery, her hair is different from that because, you, you know, after those two episodes, she has her hair is kind of more curly or whatever. And that, I think, must be a kind of on, on one level, you could say that's kind of an interesting statement. On the other level, it kind of makes you think, well, what is that kind of saying? Because that's saying when she's a kind of career staff officer and everything's going well, she's got this kind of straightened hair. And then when she's a mutineer and so on, she's got this kind of, you know, more kind of more natural hair. Or is it a kind of way of saying, really, we want her to have the kind of you know, the more natural hair, but we're sort of, we're kind of putting the different hair in the first couple of episodes so that, you know, it's almost what Star Trek's always done, of trying to sort of get something by the gatekeepers in a way. I don't know. It could, I mean, I don't know what the history is around the decisions around her hair or who, who made what decision when or whatever, but I think there's, you know, maybe 20 years time, there'll be some interesting behind the scenes discussions that come out because it's certainly something that has been thought about in the same way as with both Janeway and, and Cisco, it was being thought about and discussed and kind of, well, what exactly what kind of haircut are they going to have for this part? And it was, you know, it was an issue. It wasn't an issue, you know, even with Patrick Stewart, once they decided they didn't want his wig, there's not much they can do. I don't think, I mean, Archer's hair does change in Enterprise, but I don't think it, anyone really cares but of course much. otch's hair doesn't change in enterprise he's a white man yeah exactly. no one cares what you know. what white men's hair look like 
Unless maybe if he had long hair and a ponytail, people would think he was effeminate or something, and then they wouldn't like that. Like I haven't seen, you know, season five. That's clearly where they were going. You know, do you know what I mean? Like the, the point. The point is <laughs> yeah. that Star Trek does this a lot. Um, yeah. And I mean, people can disagree with me, but I personally think this is very true: is that they they go very far um, in reflecting a mirror back at society, saying like, you know, what are your your preconceptions and your prejudices surrounding, you know, gender, ethnicity, diversity, difference, but then they don't really go always far enough, and then they also try and play it safe at the same time. And I think what they were trying to do with Avery Books was make him less frightening. And that's because that's because they thought a white audience would find a black man in in charge frightening. And they were trying to make Kate Mulgrew less feminine because they thought a maybe a male audience, or maybe just a generally an audience, would find a female captain too feminine and soft and weak to be a captain you know to be in charge so it's kind of stupid this let's be honest changing someone's hairstyle changes you know the audience's perception of who they actually are as a character they could have done that through writing they could have done that through character development rather than their hair and i don't know if it is actually the writers who do these things or make these decisions or the creators or the production staff i think a lot of it is the studio and the studio is making decisions based on money how many viewers are we going to get watching this show if we make avery books look less ghetto as a black man in power will we get you know more viewers tuning in to ds9 because he appeals more to a mainstream white audience and very often when production companies or studios are aiming to make as much money as possible and to get as wide an audience as possible. They're normally aiming for a very broad demographic. And normally that demographic is, you know, white men aged from 18 to 50 or whatever. I mean, a lot of entertainment is geared towards that audience. It's not geared towards an ethnically diverse audience or a mixed gender audience, that kind of thing. So, I mean, they're not appealing to the LGBT community, are they? Um, when they, when they created DS9, you know, they're not, I don't think they're appealing to a massively diverse audience, which is ridiculous when you think about it, because Star Trek has appealed to almost everybody. Well, lots of people. But they are clearly attempting to appeal to fans of slightly ropey period dramas uh, in the 90s <laughs> with, with, with these episodes, do you think? I mean, yeah, but the problem is that. Um, but, but it didn't work. <laughs> I don't think that's what people wanted from Janeway. No, maybe there wasn't enough of an overlap between like people who watch Star Trek and people who like Jane Eyre. I don't know. I mean, they had the same problem, or well, not the same problem, but they had a problem with the Beowulf episode as well. I guess it's always a, a pitfall with a holodeck, isn't it? Where they were expecting, I think the writer of Heroes and Demons, we, we talked about this way back, I think, didn't we? Was surprised that actually a lot of viewers were not familiar with Beowulf, that that didn't resonate. That wasn't really a cultural touchstone. I suppose at least Jane Eyre is quite familiar to a lot of people. I mean, a lot of like, you know, I had to read Jane Eyre at school. Um, a lot of people have either read it or are kind of familiar with it. So it is sort of culturally available to them in a sense, but maybe there's not as much then maybe there's more overlap between fans of James Bond and fans of Star Trek than there is fans of Jane Eyre and fans of Star Trek. I don't know. Or maybe it's just that they don't get it because like, if you think of our man Bashir, 
I think one of the reasons that episode works really well is actually it works pretty well as a James Bond story. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like James Bond stories are pretty stupid anyway, and that one is is not that much more stupid <laughs> than most in a way. Um, and it kind of really it's written with a real love of the source material and the inspiration, a kind of affectionate, jokey homage, basically. Whereas I think part of the problem here is it's slightly unclear. Do they really love these kind of gothic stories? Do they just think they're kind of stupid? Do you know what I mean? It, it doesn't, th- th- there isn't the same, maybe it's not taken seriously enough. I don't know. It's, or, or it's not clear how seriously it's meant to be taken. And so it just comes off as a bit odd. I think my problem with the holodeck is that they never show them doing something really, like it's always a storyline in the holodeck. You know, they've always got some sort of plot. And I think it might be more fun to just watch Janeway and Balana go camping. You know, I mean, like maybe just to watch, you know, Harry Kim and Tom Paris go whitewater rafting. I mean, things are alluded to like that, but we don't actually see them do it. You know, it might, but I suppose that's because of a budget constraints, isn't it? Like, I think sometimes the holodeck suffers because it has to have some sort of narrative in it. Whereas you might use the holodeck for all sorts of activities. Uh, maybe like a visit to Venice or, I don't know, uh, some sort of 1950s dance party or something. I mean, you could use it for anything. It doesn't have to have a story with it. And we see that, I mean, we see that as well. But I guess when it, when there is a story, it's generally quite a kind of schlocky, silly one in a way. And maybe the part of the problem here is they're not sure how much they're meant to be sending up and making it silly or how much they're meant to be taking it seriously. Yeah. I think I would probably feel less cheated if I knew it was on the fourth floor of the mansion. <laughs> well, you have to, you know, track down Jerry Taylor and ask what was in that script that she wrote that they never filmed. Okay, I wish I'd write her a fan letter. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, it's been really interesting taking a look at the world of hollow novels and gothic Victorian fiction in Star Trek Voyager and Janeway as a romantic governess. But this is not the only subject that's been discussed on the network. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. Well, and I feel like a side quest could be finding more spheres and gathering intelligence from each one. And each one has like a different way you have to get into them and a different thing you have to collect. Right. Or, yeah, or they're they're cloaked differently or... Each one one is individual. Earl Grey. Because like the DNA transformation, what, where's the DNA coming from that's being transformed? You know... I, it's like I a mean, replicator. Yeah, and I think that again, <laughs> no, the, the the yeah, but I mean, again, the explanation that it's an advanced Genesis device kind of makes me buy mm, it more. Okay, yeah, but it, it just felt a little weird. The DNA thing, it just looked it looks like some. Hey, we need. Can somebody just throw some leaves on the bridge? You know, but you know, I think it's a really cool concept. The the snakes in the <laughs> in the uh, torpedo, the torpedo. I I. For some, it, at that moment, I thought this is the Halloween three of Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> to the journey. That's that's a really good point, Suzanne. We need to clarify because we're, when we're talking about Chakotay and Seven, some of the best romantic scenes are not actually with Chakotay; they're with hologram Chakotay. Yes, I would like to meet hologram Chakotay. He seems nice. You want to date with holographic Chakotay? Okay. <laughs> 
If I had a holodeck, you know I'd be programming that in right now. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Saru finally realizes at some point he's seeing its language in ultraviolet light. Basically, Morse code. I don't know why they don't say that wording. Oh, you thought Morse code? Because I was thinking binary. I, that makes sense yeah. too, but isn't binary kind of a version of Morse code? Because Morse or Morse code is a type of binary language. Because all it is is beeps and not beeps. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more available through our special patrons website. Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.